let me tell you, to start with, just a, just a hint about what we're doing um, in these summer Sundays. Um, I don't know if you know this quote, and I'm paraphrasing terribly here, but David Attenborough once was asked, when did you develop your sense of wonder at nature? To which David Attenborough responded, when did you lose yours? Um, there's something about modern, the modern world that makes us lose our sense of wonder, our willingness to engage in beauty and in story, in the arts. In fact, if you ask a bunch of four-year-olds how many of them are artists, they'll all put their hand up. Um, and that number will slowly shrink to one or two in a classroom by the time they're 16. And yet, there are stories in the Old Testament which are stories, and we think of them as children's stories, but they weren't written for children, they were written for all of us. So this, uh, this morning and all of these uh, Sundays, we're going to be looking at some of those stories that we don't look at because we think they're for children, but allow God to help us feel the empathy in those stories. Uh, and to feel a resonance with our own lived experience. So this morning we come to the story of Noah, and, and I just want to talk a little bit again before we look at the actual story. Of course, <laughs> what a story. I mean, what an extraordinary story. Is this, can this story possibly be true? I mean, you think about the, the logistics alone. Um, I mean, this is a big big uh, box that we're talking about. It's the size of a couple of football pitches, but still, there are a couple of million uh, species of animal around the world, and, um, um, and you'd struggle to feed. Anyway, oh yeah, you could think of all the logistics, and how do you get a kangaroo down, up from Australia? You, you, could, you know all of that stuff, the stuff that makes the whole story rather implausible. Um, I'm a big Eddie Izzard fan, and of course he's got some words to say about what he calls the etch-a-sketch end of the world. Um, and he asks, what exactly is an evil giraffe? Um, and he asks, well, what, what, do you, what about the ducks? Why did the ducks get away with it? And sort of, you know, you'd better get in the ark, it's, it's going to start raining, it's going to be a flood. So, but Eddie Izzard was onto something, wouldn't he? There's a certain absurdity about this story. Now, this is how I would respond to that at this point. I don't think uh, that, that the people that wrote the story are that fussed about whether or not it's actually true. It's not actually the point that they're trying to make. In fact, if you read the story in its entirety, which is sort of chapters 6 through to 8 or 9, um, there are two accounts that are interwoven, and they don't, they, they, you can't actually reconcile the two of them anyway. There are different numbers of animals, there's different times in the boat, there's... There's, there's all sorts of stuff that doesn't match. There's no attempt to make it all look um, historical. Um, so, th here are our options. Number one, that it did happen, just simply as it says. Um, of course, ultimately, God can do anything. So, it's, it would actually be reasonable to suggest that somehow God made this whole thing happen in his great sovereignty. There's a, there's a second option, which it happened, it happened more locally. Um, uh, now there is a certain, some point to a certain amount of ecological evidence of, uh, you know, a couple of great floods in that part of the world, and certainly the way in which the Bible talks about universal, um, for example, in Acts two, which we were looking at a few weeks ago in, in, on the day of Pentecost, it kind of fits with the biblical language to talk about the whole world, but actually mean the sort of immediately known world. So that's our second option. And the, but again, the third option really is that it doesn't matter whether or not it happened, and maybe it didn't. Um, 
because actually the point that the writer is making is nothing to do with whether or not it happened. He's not that interested. Um, and this is how I get to that as probably where I sit. There are loads and loads of flood stories from that part of the world, um, from around this era and before. In fact, we find flood, we find flood stories as far away as, uh, as the Maasai tribes in East Africa uh, to uh, the Aborigines in, in Australia. Now, there's debate as to whether or not those got there with some early Christian evangelists, possibly, who knows. Um, but this, sto this story is by no means speaking into a vacuum. It is speaking in dialogue with the surrounding culture. Um, and actually, all of the ones in that area of the world have a lot of things in common. They all uh, talk about a divinely initiated flood with one man who saves his family and representatives of the animal kingdom, and he does so in a boat or in a raft. Um, and each of them talk about a bird being released, though some of the, the birds are different, but the, but the idea is the same. And all of them talk about a sacrifice afterwards. So there's all of these stories that, that, that share a huge amount in common. I think uh, that one way to think about this story is a little bit like how we think about the film The Life of Brian. So bear with me. The Life of Brian is is really about engaging with a commonly understood story and trying to ask questions about the way it's been understood and what lies behind it. Nobody would claim that Monty Python wrote The Life of Brian in order to underline the historicity of Jesus. Okay? They are using a well-established story and, and challenging us uh, in the way that we understand what it says. Um, and, and if we were to take that as a model here, what we might say is that the, that the things that this story shares with all the other ones is, is actually of not particular interest to us. What's of interest to us and what is striking, would have been striking to the first people that heard the story, are the ways in which it is different from the way, uh, from the, the commonly understood stories of the time. And, those, and that difference is fundamentally located in the character of God where he is radically different from all of the gods of the surrounding nations. Here we have a God who is faithfully committed to his promises, uh, to justice, um, to his people. Um, and here we have a God who is powerful over all of creation, including the worst possible storm. This is what stands out. Um, let me give you some more precise examples. I'm going to give you a couple of ideas from... Um, Gilgamesh and Atrahasis, I'm probably saying that wrong, but i tell you what, go on a Wikipedia hunt for flood stories and you'll enter this wonderful rabbit warren of strange ancient um, ideas. But these stories both come from Mesopotamia, um, both probably predate the biblical narrative. In Atrahasis, um, the, the human beings are multiplying too fast and they're making too much noise, so the council of gods decide, decide that they need to destroy the earth. Whereas in the Noah story, humanity have rejected their creator, are destroying the world, and are just becoming thoroughly morally corrupt. And God is grieved and decides to put an end to it. In, in Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh, who's the Noah character, happens to worship the god Ear, uh, E-A, not, e, not E-A-R. Um, and, and Ear is the one god who disagrees with this decision to flood the earth. So Ear tells Gilgamesh secretly to build this boat so that he can survive. Noah, on the other hand, 
finds favour with God because of his commitment to being righteous. Again, in Gilgamesh, the flood that is created is so terrible that even the dogs, so even the, even the gods, coward like dogs, it said, at what they had created. Whereas in Noah, God remains constantly in control of every element, the constant initiator of every part of the story. And one more little comparison for you. In Atrahasis, um, the gods uh, are starving at the end of the story because there's been nobody to offer sacrifices to them. So when Atrahasis offers sacrifices, it says that the gods crowded like flies around the sacrificer. Whereas when Noah offers uh, the sacrifice, God enters into a new covenant with him. So that just gives you, there's other comparisons that we could draw, but that just gives you a few ideas of how this story is trying to be different and trying to display a very different God. So what is the nature of that God? Well, let's experience some of the story. Um, we're going to read a few snippets, and I'll, we're going to jump a few bits, just because it, it, it would take quite a while to read it all. We can start at chapter 6, verse 9. So we are going to read for a while, but settle in, because it's a great story. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to bring them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything as God had commanded him. Then Noah said, God, then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, um, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep the various kinds of uh, alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain uh, on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of unclean and unclean animals, of the birds and all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after, seven, after the seven days, the floodwaters came 
on the earth. Let's skip uh, just a couple of paragraphs, verse uh, 17, after this description of the floodwaters uh, rising. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly um, on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Everything living in, everything living, every living thing, sorry, that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And the, and the water flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him on the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Let's jump, turn over the page uh, to verse 18 at the top of page 10. So Noah came out together with his son. So the it's landed now, and we've had the bit about the birds. Uh, so Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that moved along the ground, and all the birds and everything that moves on the ground came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. We're going to skip again to the next, uh, next column, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and with every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow, or simply bow, like a bow and arrow bow, in the clouds. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. So, if one could get past the myriad of questions and struggles that we have, and by all means come and chat to me afterwards and I'll see if I can bluff my way through any sort of answers. If we can get through those, what do we see in this story? What is the overall sense of God we have when compared to the gods of these other stories? We see a God who is relational, 
He is grieved uh, by mankind. He is faithful to Noah. Whereas all the other gods just wish that humanity would keep the noise down while they die. Um, God is, is just. Um, while the other gods just, just want to get rid of the noise, God is angry at sin. He is angry at evil. He's hang- angry at the brokenness of this world. And he wants to purify it and give it a new chance to grow in that purity. And thirdly, simply, God is supreme. He needs nothing. And he remains fully powerful in every moment of the story, while these other gods cower like dogs because they can't control what they've created, Um, while these other gods starve because of that lack of sacrifices. And and I think that the evocative image to stay with you in this happens right in the middle. There's there's a structure to this story. Um, It's it's kind of embedded in the story, but it's also something that is brought out by the way the story is structured. Um, And it's classic Hebrew literature that there are sort of uh, decreasing rings, I suppose you could say, that are sort of mirrored opposites. You know, the animals getting in, the animals getting out, the the floodwaters rising, the floodwaters, all of this stuff that point towards a middle moment in the story. Uh, And that moment is as this, I mean, we always see boats, and of course, even the video you saw, they whooshed out and showed you a boat, and we always think of a boat. It wasn't a boat. There's no indication that it was a boat. It was a box. That's what an ark was. It was a box. Um, It had no, a, a boat, a hull, gives some indication that you can navigate something, that you've got some power, some control over what happens to this boat. No, there was none. It was a box floating in the water uh, with Noah and his family inside praying that the gopher wood wouldn't break as the waves pounded against it. And in that moment, at the pinnacle of the story, we have this simple phrase, but God remembered Noah. Um, that's that sort of pinnacle moment. Um, some of you know, uh, uh, you know anxieties and stress. I certainly have had my own experience of stress and anxiety, which feels like you know, these waters pouring uncontrollably over me, that hopelessness being lost in the sea. Um, and our experience of moments like that push us towards these other ideas of God, don't they? They push us towards ideas of God where he's not in control, where he's not interested, where he's not loving and concerned for my well-being, but he's disinterested. Um, I think the point of this story is that in those moments, be grateful that this is the real God, the God who really exists, a God who combats evil, a God who is loving and faithful to his people, and a God who is supremely powerful over all things. Now, some of you know that one of my favorite topics in the Bible is watery chaos. I was saying earlier that I did my thesis on it. Um, this kind of water imagery, which appears all over the place. Um, at, because water, the seas, were the place of the absence of God, the, the pre-creation chaos. Um, the seas were a place of death. The earth was created out of that as a place of structure where life could flourish. 
So as the seas come back in to destroy the earth, it is that chaos returning. That's, the, that's, how, that's how sea functions in, uh, in the Bible. The sea is full of monsters that might come and get you. Um, and in some ways, as I, said, as I said, that reflects a little bit of our experience of anxiety um, and just of, of suffering under the weight of intimidation at what lies before us. Psalm 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. Uh, my throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. That's not someone. I can't think which someone that is, but it's not someone. I'll tell you later if you want to know. And yet, in the midst of that feeling, God, as I said, remains, remains relational. He remains just. He remains supreme. Psalm 18, one of my favorite psalms, talks about that sense of being overwhelmed uh, by the waters. And then it describes God's rescue. And it says, the valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. He reached down from on high. He took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. That's the God of this story. And this is the God of every moment of our lives. It doesn't feel that way because God allows, as he does throughout the Bible, he allows his story to hang by the weakest of threads. And that's actually, again, how we experience life. Let me tell you a brief story before I finish. I was in a lake uh, with my nephew um, uh, a couple of years ago who was, like most Canadian children, completely fearless of everything. Um, and he wanted to swim from the dock, which was, I don't know, a metre and a half away from me, to me. And he was, I think, four at the time. So he launches himself into the water and disappears under the water. And then eventually he bobs up, flailing like crazy, takes a massive breath and disappears back under. And slowly, bobbing up again and coming back down again, he makes his way, the metre and a half, to me. And he makes it. Now... As you can imagine, as I'm watching this happen, everything in me is just wanting to reach out and grab him. And of course, I'm watching very carefully for real danger, for real signs of distress in him. But actually, because I am so in control of the situation, because all I have to do is reach out my hand, I can allow the story to hang on the weakest of threads, this appearance of hopelessness. And that is the way that God operates in our lives. In these moments when we are buffeted by the waves and all things seem completely out of control, the reason that God can allow that to be is because God remains constantly just there to come and grab us and lift us out. And of course, the ultimate moment in the Bible where God seems to hang his whole story on the weakest of threads is on the cross where his son, the creator of the universe, hangs naked, broken, um, and dying. Um, and it is, in, it is in that moment that he performs the greatest rescue that he might possibly do. 
So just in a moment of silence, maybe reflect on what are the, what are the areas of your life where you feel like the floods are coming? Where are the areas you feel out of control? Where are the, where are the areas where you feel tainted or unworthy? Know that God loves you. Know that God can reach out the minute he needs to and grab hold of you. Know that he remains in control. Father, thank you for this strange and mysterious story. There's so much we don't understand. But I pray that you would help us to hold on to this motif in all of our struggles of a God who remembers us, that will never forget, who loves us and is powerful to do all things in our lives. Amen.